0: thank you, Tim. Appreciate you uh, helping us out today. We're back in our study. We took a, a week off from our study through the books of First and Second Corinthians to have some evangelism training. Both services last week. Don Sunshine was here doing his Go Mad, Go Make a Difference training, and so I hope that was a blessing to you. That that training is still online through today. You can go online and watch it and be encouraged by it. We do have handouts that you can use to track through. Uh, those teaching times. It is our desire very much to equip you to be evangelists, to be faithful to give out the gospel, which is our job as believers, t- and that's how we got in, correct? And so someone being faithful to give out the gospel, so uh, be about that and use those training times for your benefit. I'd like you, if you would, if you have uh, little ones through su- in Sunday school through grade 6, they can be dismissed. The rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to Second Corinthians 12, and we'll dig in today. What does God's Word say? What's it mean by what it says? How does that apply? We'll go verse by verse through Sometimes the deepest pain in life is inflicted by those whom we care about the most. I think we all have had that experience. It's exactly what Paul was going through when he wrote 2 Corinthians. He loved the church greatly. He uh, expressed that love by his actions. He sacrificed greatly to see them come into the kingdom. He loved them uh, with his handling of the word of God. He loved them by staying with them and discipling them and teaching them after he planted the church. And then false teachers came into the Corinthian church, as we've seen, and started lying about him and discrediting him, and they passed out their little lists on the faults of Paul and their little letters about how bad Paul was, and the people bought it. And they believed it, and he was discouraged, and he was depressed. It was a difficult time for Paul with all of that pain that goes with all those times. Typically, we resent difficult times. It's not uh, unusual for us to dislike suffering. We don't like pain. It isn't enjoyable for us. We can endure it, of course, and persevere when we begin to understand what God's purposes is, are in their accompanying them. But maybe you can say this perhaps because you've learned this, or maybe you still haven't learned it yet and it's still in your future, but sometimes the greatest times of spiritual development for you and for me will be during the greatest times of difficulty. That's what the Lord intends, certainly. Because we understand that the purposes of God are at work, and you then and I can be motivated by the fact that he wants us to endure and to come out differently than we went in. And we've seen that there are lots of places in Scripture where we see the purposes of God in difficulty, and, and this passage is no different. It gives us some additional understanding for sure, and, and that's why we're going to take our time with it. Paul knew about suffering, certainly. Uh, we saw that back in chapter 11. Uh, he knew what it was to be shipwrecked. He and to spend 24 hours floating around in the ocean hanging on to some piece of wreckage. Uh, He knew what it was to be whipped five times with 39 lashes. He knew what it was to be three times beaten with rods. He knew what it was to be in jail. He knew what it was to be stoned and left for dead, to be in danger all the time. He understood uh, what it was like to be hungry because he couldn't afford food and to be cold and to be wet because he didn't have sufficient clothing. He knew about physical suffering for sure. He also knew about the pressure of guiding the churches he had pastored and the pain that came from criticism and ridicule and gossip. He watched people be deceived, empathized with their weaknesses. He burned in his heart when they fell into sin. And these things were hard on him because he loved them so much. In fact, th- that word about being um, a suffering through the difficulties of the church of physical suffering uh, had to do with the rising up of a rebellion. Paul said it was just like a rebellion all the time. He was dealing with that kind of thing in the church, and, and the language tells us that the care of the churches was harder even than the physical suffering that he had to go through, because here's a guy who knew what it was like to feel unloved, to feel unappreciated, to be made fun of, to be gossiped about, uh, his love for them was labeled as underhanded with a motive to get rich, and after all the time he spent with them, to be discarded like so much rubbish was difficult, no question, very, very hard time, he focuses on it. Starting in chapter twelve, verse five, he says, This look there in your copy of God's word, on behalf of such a man I'll boast. But on my own behalf I'll not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses, for I do not wish to boast for if I do, do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And here's where we saw our sixth mark of a faithful minister, and in Paul's case a true apostle care about a reputation or admiration or people thinking he's powerful, he, he doesn't want them to think more about him than they do the message of the gospel that he brings. So even though no doubt he, he would like to be accepted and liked, and no doubt he would love for the church to love him back, he just cares about a good testimony in front of the people who know him. That's all he cares about, which really set him in contradistinction to the false apostles who always want people to think about them in a very powerful way and want their image to be polished. He doesn't want his hearers to be so impressed with his self-advertisement that uh, they would be inclined to follow him rather than the message of salvation and sanctification. So, again, uh, just let the church regard the apostle in himself as no more than just the average believer saved by grace. That's how he refers to himself, and that's how he wants them to uh, think about him. And that response is so important, And, and this passage is such a wonderful section Apart from the difficulty that afflicted Paul, there are some universal truths that we're going to see, I think, that will be very beneficial to the church throughout the ages. Because one thing that we know for sure, trouble is part of being human. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. We, we don't know what everyone goes through. Uh, some people want to make sure everybody knows all their trouble. Others have lots of trouble and difficulty, and they don't share it. And so it's impossible to know everything that everybody goes through. But we know from Job 5.7, a man who certainly knew something about trouble, he said, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. So we understand trouble is part of life. It's axiomatic actually. That was the whole point of Jesus' comment in John sixteen, thirty three, in the world you're going to have trouble, but take courage, I've overcome the world. So just very straightforward, this is going to be difficult for you. We saw that trouble comes from all different directions. It comes from a fallen world that groans and can cause us trouble it bears the result of of original sin, and it doesn't work as it's supposed to, and so things happen that can cause trouble. It comes from trouble with the results of sin in our own body, certainly physical ailments. uh, That can be trouble when we inflict on ourselves because of our own vices and rebelliousness. In other words, sowing to the flesh and then reaping back the consequences of those bad decisions, or God's chastening we bring on ourselves because of our disobedience. We also see, we also see trouble comes a result of of, uh, ministering in the church. This is the reason why Paul's writing the letter he wants us to understand the difficult times that came there and and we see from scripture trouble can come on the plane that's hidden from our physical eyes that's the spirit realm. And we saw that 2 weeks ago and we looked at some examples pretty extensively about that and we're going to see some more in the passage that's before us so we're going to take some time with that but in all these things we know that God doesn't waste any hardship and he has purposes behind that hardship for believers for their good now and for their good and eternity, and for God's glory, and that's something you need you to remember because this is what we see all through the scriptures: uh, difficult times for your good and for God's glory now and in eternity. And so we're going to see that over and over again. But we saw from Second Corinthians one three. And we won't look at these passages again. But last time we looked at that, we saw that the Lord intends us to comfort uh, other people in the way that we were comforted in difficult times. So he's very clear about, you're going to have some hardship, and I want you to be able to comfort other people. We also saw from James 1.3, difficult times are to be looked at as a testing of our faith, and the outcome of that test is supposed to, be to produce endurance. And if you missed any of this, you can go back and catch it on Spotify or on YouTube. And, and we also saw the exact same thing last time from Romans 5.3. Uh, he, he has our best interest in mind. He wants us to have perseverance and proven character and hope. And when we have those things in ever-increasing measure, we know that these are indications that the Father loves us. And we looked again at Romans twelve twelve, rejoicing in hope, mark this, persevering in tribulation. He wants us to persevere. A- again, the same message, trouble is unavoidable, but God's purposes prevail. And, and, and we didn't have time for these last two really to get into them in depth, so I want to look at them just briefly. But Again, we saw trouble comes from a bunch of different directions, a uh, fallen world certainly that groans and can cause us trouble, uh, trouble with the results of sin in our own body, trouble that can come as a result of ministering to the church, trouble that can come on the plane that's hidden from our physical eyes from the spirit realm, and then trouble can come uh, from the Lord's chastening, and, and I think it's important to kind of balance these out to understand that there can be difficult times coming from that. Hebrews is a great place, Twelve eleven. We see that very clearly here. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. So we're talking about discipline that comes on believers from the Lord. That's the, the whole uh, context here. Much like we discipline our children corporately, and that's not happy a time for them, but it is uh, those who've been trained by it. Afterward, it says, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the idea there is, listen, it's not going to be fun, but the Lord has his purposes in it, and trouble can come from it, and it's going to produce something good. And 1 Corinthians 11:29, 29, much the same thing. Uh, we've looked at this numerous times as we take the table, the communion table, because it's, it's pertinent to that table time, because the Corinthian church was coming together and taking the table inappropriately, and Paul was addressing it. But he says this, and it's important to realize... For he who dr- eats, and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly, you've got to come to the table with the right heart attitude, and that means you've got to be introspective and ask the right questions about what the Lord would have you to do. And then for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So that's the judgment. Some of you are weak, some of you actually are sick, and a number have passed away because they came and what? Took the table inappropriately. They didn't evaluate it correctly. So that's pretty serious. But this is the Lord doing this. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So you can avoid all of that if you ask the right questions and come to the table in, co- in the correct manner. But when we are judged, now mark this, we're disciplined by the Lord, there's our word, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And the idea is that the Lord's only disciplining those who are his. His children get disciplined for disobedience. So if you walk in disobedience all your life and you don't find any discipline on your life, your life seems to be prospering and you're doing well, then I would propose to you you probably aren't redeemed to begin with. But if you are seeing some trouble because of, of uh, disobedience in your life, then I would say that's the Lord's loving hand on you, and trouble can certainly come from that way. Trouble can also come in order to show the Lord's power. That's one we didn't have time for last time. In John chapter 9, verse 2, this is certainly the case. And again, you know, the disciples are asking questions that we ask as well. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? What's the context? They're walking along. Here's a guy who's been born blind from birth, and the disciples ask a question, which I think it, the first in their mind was if somebody's having some physical problems, it's because they're sinful. And so Jesus says, listen, it was neither this man nor uh, that sin nor his parents. So he's not denying that sometimes difficult things come on people because of disobedience. He's just saying that wasn't the case here. What was the case but it was so that the works of god might be displayed in him so sometimes trouble can come in order to show the lord's power plain and simple he has the right to bring trouble so that he can be glorified when he fixes it and i think some of us have probably experienced that and and related to that and to our current passage trouble can come in order to prove a divine point point. and we're going to look at this a little bit more in depth in just a minute but you know and who's an, who's the example of that i mean certainly um job and we should point out that all of his friends thought he was being chastened for sinfulness, right? I mean, that's pretty much what they said the whole time they were counseling him. And, and, uh, but what was really happening? Well, God was proving a heavenly point, and he, he counted Job a worthy example. And we know Job suffered, and he didn't know why all these things came upon him. But how do you think he feels now? Now that you can look back on that whole thing, you can see how it all washed out, and ex- actually the conversation that went on in heaven, I'm sure he feels pretty good about it. We'll look at that more in just a minute. But as we move on from there, you know, God used Satan and his demons to accomplish all of that in Job's life, which really connects us with our passage. And, and as with the man born blind, it's really hard to determine the reason why trouble comes on in the life. And I think we're quick to jump to one certain conclusion or another, or maybe just default to one. But I, I, and I think that we can narrow it down, certainly by asking some questions. If Somebody's having a lot of, of trouble in their life, then, and if they claim to be a believer, then we can talk about how they're living their life and what's going on, and perhaps the Lord's doing some chastening. But it may be just the Lord wants to show his power. It could be uh, that he um, is proving a divine point. There's any number of things that could happen. It could just be coming from the fact that we live in a cursed world, and we have a body that's made out of clay, and it breaks down. There's all kinds of things that can be going on. It's not just one or the other. But, and here we have some obvious things going on. The Lord's revealed that to us, uh, as with a man born blind. But it's hard to determine why suffering is occurring in someone's life. And, and that really isn't the necessary thing that we have to do, I don't think particularly. What the Lord really wants to do is have us understand his purposes in the middle of it. I think that's the main thing. And, and that's what we're going to look at. And I think that's the emphasis on the passages we've already seen. And so it seems clear as we get to our passage and we understand what what Paul's been carried along to convey that we come to another great example of what God intends as an outcome of difficulty. And in Paul's case, even further, to continually show the churches throughout all the ages the key to powerful ministry. And I'm foreshadowing just a little bit because if you've read it, you know where we're going. But I would say, you know, I've said all this, but I realize that these are not secrets to you. This is just the way it is. We're fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world satan and his demons have temporary dominion over this world and we are not able to personally insulate ourselves from a universe of trouble and fallen people difficult people who will cause us hardship we can't insulate ourselves from that we shouldn't expect that we would be insulated from it and that of course leads to emotional trouble and marital trouble and family trouble and physical trouble and financial trouble and work trouble and it just goes on and on and that's part of life and it's something we should expect to occur jesus said listen don't worry about tomorrow's trouble. You've got enough trouble already today, and be of good cheer. I've overcome the world in this world that you're going to have trouble. And, and as I said to you last time, you know, we're usually just in or just emerging from or anticipating the next trouble because this is how the world is. And so these passages then, because we're taking time with them, they're always timely. And it's good to remind ourselves of this because, can I tell you, as a minister, it's very hard to go to a hospital room or to a house or someplace and and try to convince a believer that the Lord has his good in mind in the middle of difficult times. If they haven't already come down to that conclusion before the times come. Which is why we have all the passages to begin with. If we haven't determined that the Lord has our good in, at heart. And that for our good and his glory for now and eternity. Then difficult times are going to seem very hard. And it's going to be hard to switch our mind to think this is a loving God that's allowing these things to come into my heart. And into my mind and into my life. But I think we can see that very clearly, particularly in the passage we're in. Now, look at verse 7, if you would, at chapter 12. Paul says this. He says, um, Verse 7, it says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. You know, no question, uh, a, a verse full of questions, right? I mean, when you read that, you're just thinking, oh, boy. What are we talking about here? And... and We looked at last time, it's where we kind of left off, and I've added some stuff in that we didn't cover. But surpassing greatness uh, is the Greek compound noun hyperbole, and that's where we derive our English word for uh, that figure of speech. But in this particular case, the word literally means a throwing beyond. Hooper is over, and Ballow is to throw. So in the games, it would be a javelin thrown so far past the previous throws that they didn't even count anymore. Nobody's even looking at them. They're so far past. And same with the discus. Uh, another competitor sells a discus out there, and nobody's looking at the previous ones because they're so far past the origi- that, that farthest mark. And so the idea is that Paul's vision was a vision beyond all comparison. It was far beyond any other vision or any other revelation. At uh, the very presence of the dwelling place of God, he got to go there. And that's that vision and revelation that he had. And that's so far beyond anything else. And Paul had some pretty, pretty important ones, wouldn't you say? And the Damascus Road was one of them. But this was way beyond any of those marks. And because it was so great, look at the rest of it, for that reason, that's what that means. Because the, the vision was so fantastic, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Paul certainly made clear that he didn't want the church to exalt him. We see that all along, don't we? Uh, but God was additionally concerned about something else that Paul Remain humble, and Paul to grow as a believer through difficulty and trouble. And, you know, as you think about the church, they might not be the only ones that would elevate him to a level above what he was accustomed to when they heard about the vision. The Lord was also a little concerned about Paul when he would think about that rapture up to heaven, and that might make for an arrogant Paul, and that would inhibit the ministry God had for for Paul and, and he had for Paul in the church, and so as a merciful father who already knew this outcome was going to be the realization of, of what would happen to Paul, he, there has arrived a thorn in the flesh. And Paul doesn't tell us a lot about the thorn, but we know something about trouble, and so I think we can make some applications here pretty clearly. Now look back at verse 7. It says there's some clues here. He says, there was given me, and, and with this we kind of have a clue to Paul's suffering and his difficulty. God had a purpose in it because when it says it was given me, I think we have to say that God allowed this. It can't really mean anything else. This is from the hand of the Lord. And then he called it a thorn in the flesh. And when we talk about a thorn, we usually think about experiences we've had with wild blackberries or multifloral roses when you're walking through the woods. You might start walking into the briars and pretty soon you can't move any farther forward because they've got all their hooks and you've got to back out. I think everybody's had that experience at one time or another. Or you might think about um, some kind of splinter where I grew up uh, cactus of all kinds, uh, goat heads, sand spurs, those kinds of things all around. And um, those are certainly painful, and and you want to avoid them, and they can require some effort to free yourself from them. Uh, but that word, which would be very similar to the word for thorn in the crown of thorns for Jesus, that he had pushed on his head right before his crucifixion, although painful, that's not the word Paul uses. It's not talking about that. thorn, Scallops is is a pointed piece of wood or a stake. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament is right here. And I point that out because the Lord could have carried Paul along to use whatever word he wanted to convey, but this is the one he used. There's no New Testament equivalent, and so we have to move into the Old Testament to kind of see the sense of the word. And Numbers chapter thirty-three, verse fifty-five is a place we can stop. And the Lord has given his people some instruction as they inherited the land, and he's telling them they need to drive out the inhabitants that are there, and you, I think you know the story if you've read through uh, the early parts of the Old Testament. The Lord wants his people to move in and inhabit the land he's given to them, so he has to drive out the, they have to drive out the people that he wants to judge. And then he says this, he says, If you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as, here's our word, thorns in your sides— and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And the idea is one of sharpened stakes. That's the idea. A jab with a sharpened stake or a stick. Same thing we see in Hosea. And as Israel's being very disobedient here in this, and the prophet has to speak to them, he's talking about what's going to happen. Uh, they're not going to be at home where they are. And he says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way, talking about Israel, with, here's our word, thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her pass And the idea here is very similar in ancient times of sharpened stakes that would repel an attack on a rampart wall or cause someone to be trapped, painful, even possibly deadly, with sharpened stakes that would keep them in a position where they couldn't move to the right or to the left. So as opposed to a splinter or, or a sharp thorn from a vine or a plant, even those which per- pierce Jesus's head, this is a singularly used word meaning a stake or a pole with a sharp pointed end. And he doesn't really say what the affliction is. Which means that speculation really isn't encouraged. People have speculated all along. If you've read any commentaries on this, and even your Bible might say, you know, this is probably Paul's eyes or Paul's skin or Paul's whatever. I don't think that's the direction we're supposed to go because Paul doesn't say, and he could have easily said what it was. Whatever it was, it just had a disabling power over him. We know that for sure because we know that from the Word. And it's even reasonable to think that he's using this metaphorically. It wouldn't be impossible for us to understand it this way. In other words, that the pain a- and its effect on him from whatever it was was like being impaled on a sharpened stake, and he couldn't get away. And that wouldn't be uh, inconsistent with how the text is, is laid out. And it could be referring to the whole situation with the Corinthian church, the false apostles, the deceived people, the personal attacks from those he loved so much. And that was a constant uh, th- Stake in his side, which just immobilized him, because you know how Paul felt about the churches and how much he loved them. But either way, it's a devastating. Uh, it was devastating to him physically and emotionally, and I think we can see that clearly enough. And he calls it, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. Now, the flesh certainly is the physical part of you, but it doesn't only have to be that. It can also, it's also referred to as your unredeemed humanness, and and you can see where I'm going with this if you look at Galatians chapter five or sixteen. As Paul is giving instruction to the Galatian church, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And I think everybody's experienced this, right? Because believers can get trapped up in the same kinds of sins that unbelievers live in daily. For a temporary time, of course, because this is not the pattern of your life. If the pattern of your life are those things, then you've never been redeemed. But your life can see some of these things from time to time, and Paul is giving some instruction about how to have battle here and and to win. He says, verse nineteen. Now the deeds of the flesh. So we're going to get into some of these things. Are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions envying drunkenness carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God so the flesh here really is referring to sinful desires and then he explains some of them so so all the predispositions that are sinful in other words those become the beachhead where temptation lands and we understand that and Paul like you and me had natural human desires and he had appetites and, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but when, when the Lord is using this tremendous suffering to literally stab his otherwise proud flesh and his physical body and his fleshly tendencies were pierced by this suffering. So, physical pain was involved, but that doesn't have to be illness. It doesn't have to be actually a physical affliction in his flesh. It could also be the piercing of the flesh. That's the desires of the flesh. And certainly the text would lend itself to that just as easily. So physical pain was involved, but that doesn't have to be an illness because we've all been betrayed by people, haven't we? We've all been gossiped about. We've all been insulted. We've all been ridiculed. We've all had our hearts broken, if you will, enough to know that physical pain comes from that, right? In fact, sometimes the situation is so painful physically that we would really have preferred an injury to the broken heart or the insult or or the ridicule or the backbiting or the betrayal that occurred as a result of a relationship or something. So we understand that physical pain doesn't have to actually be, you know, you got a you got your arm broken. I mean, it could actually be uh, the emotional pain that comes from all of that. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, you know, I think it's Paul's illness. You know, we, it could be that because that's what we, that's what we see in a lot of the, and a lot of the commentaries. And I, I would just kind of point out a few things because I, w- I want to make sure that you feel settled and we we have a, a firm foundation here. Because I don't think the intent of the passage is to really describe for us and help us understand clearly exactly what the thorn in the flesh was, and so speculation is not really profitable here. In fact, it takes us way away, I think, from where the Lord wants us to be. But again, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13, and again, he's writing the churches in the region of Galatia. If you know that, you know this, if you read Galatians, you realize it's one of the books that was a cyclical book. So it went around to a bunch of different churches, not just, not just the church at Galatia, but um, this is a region with Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, uh, Phrygia, Pisidia, this is an area that was settled by the Celts uh, they, uh, they uh, uh, from the region of Gaul, which is now modern France. So, Celts are not exactly known for compassion or mercy showing, if you know anything about history. But in verse 13, he's talking to them, and listen to what he says, and I, this, is, this has a lot of clues here. He's speaking to you, the churches in Galatia. He says, you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. So, what's that mean? Well, some temporary illness had come on him, which caused him to have to lay over in this area so perhaps that came to him from the lord we don't know it it doesn't give us that information certainly would be consistent with what we understand how the lord works but paul was laid over there with some physical illness and we're going to see what it is in just a minute and that was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe but you received me as an angel of god as christ jesus himself where then is that sense of blessing you had for i bear witness that if possible you would have here it is plucked out your eyes and give them to me what was the problem temporarily some optical problem, right? I mean, something where he couldn't see, some infection, some difficulty see that he had there. He wasn't able to move on, right, because he couldn't see. So he's in that area. And, of course, Paul is always about giving the gospel. Wherever he lands, he does it. And so this is what he's doing. And he reminds them that this is what the, the case was. But I think it's, it's instructional for us, too, because um, if you're thinking maybe it's a physical illness, we've got to nail it down, you know, And you say, maybe that was Paul's thorn in the flesh. But again, I think that was a temporary illness. Paul didn't stay and remain. He had to stop in the region of Galatia. He couldn't go any further. And they ministered to him until he was healthy again. Uh, You know, Daniel and I were talking this Wednesday, this last Wednesday as we were preparing dinner, how Paul was taken out of the city and stoned. And he he fell down, and they thought he was dead. And everybody left. like, okay, we did our job, right? And then what does it say? And Paul popped up and went into the city and encouraged the believers. I mean, he didn't even leave. He went back into the same city where they stoned him. Now, I mean, if you've ever been hit by something hard like that, you know there's probably some stitches involved are going to be needed, right? I mean, your head's going to look pretty messy and, and you're going to you're look like a mess. Paul gets up and he goes in and, and he, um, he encourages the believers. So anything that we know about Paul, it's this Paul was tough, right? And Paul wasn't any wimp and he wasn't laid down just from some minor thing. I mean, the dude gets stoned. And they think he's dead, and he gets up, and he comes back into the city. So he's not, I mean, I I told the first service, it's a tough hombre, okay? And so knowing what we know about Paul, you know, if he wasn't tough, as tough as he was, he couldn't have endured all the hardships that we looked at in chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, right? I mean, he he couldn't have been an invalid, right? If if the physical thorn in the flesh made him an invalid, there's no way he could have traveled the traveling he had to do and and, uh, had the trouble that he had to endure, right? So I think as we think about the trouble in the flesh, we need to really leave that in the classification of just intense difficulty. Whatever it was, it was something hard, something that the Lord gave him to accomplish a certain purpose, and that's sufficient because um, the rest of it we can really know. We can know how the Lord used the difficulty. We don't have to know exactly what the difficulty is because the Lord doesn't see fit to have us know that. Now look back at verse 7. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. Here it is, a messenger of Satan. So that's when everybody's, you know, radar goes up. What? You know, I mean, a messenger of Satan, Paul had, you know, did Paul have a demon? No, Paul didn't have a demon. Um, But there was something going on here. Let's take a look and see what it is. Now, the word messenger in the Greek is the word agalos, which is where we get our word angel in English. It's used a number of places in the New Testament. This time it has to do with a demon. How do we know that? Well, it's an agalos from Satan, right? So it can't mean anything else besides a demon. But, The word itself always refers to a personal being. It's never referred to something inanimate. So it it can refer to a human being, and it's interpreted that way in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, The leaders of the churches, which are churches for all time, they're just in general referred to as messengers, and that's the word that's used in Revelation 2 and 3. And then, of course, they're used to refer to angelic beings from the Lord. One flies across the sky and proclaims, you know, the gospel in the book of Revelation. If you were with us, you know that. So in this case, it's an an angel, but it's not from God. It's from Satan. And um, and again, we get this repeat here of trouble. Trouble can come from the spirit realm. We already looked at that before. We understand that's the case. We're going to see some more examples of it in just a minute. That's not unusual. And as we think about Job, and we just talked about him just a minute ago, I want to show you this. If you've not read this, I would encourage you, of course, read through your Bible every year cover to cover, and you'll get to this passage Uh, soon enough but in Job chapter 1 verse 7 we see some fascinating things going on this is probably one of the most fascinating areas of scripture uh, for me to read to understand kind of what goes on in heaven and some of the conversations that perhaps occur other than what we can see in other places so the context is that Satan's been down on the earth and he comes up into heaven before the Lord's throne and we know that that's the case. That is actually what occurs, because in the book of Revelation we know that halfway through, through the tribulation time, what happens to Satan? He gets the old boot, right? He's out. He can't come up. Demons can't come up. They're they're bound to earth from that time on until the end, until the beginning of the eternal state, right? A thousand year reign of Christ. And so they they focus their attention on earth. But right now they can come up, and here they're doing it. And and so there's a conversation going to come on uh, come up, and the Lord says to Satan, "From where do you come?" And then Satan answered the lord and said from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it so what do we know about one of the names of satan do you know this, this is, he's the accuser of the brethren right new testament tells us that so we know on a regular basis satan and the demons accuse us i mean they may bring your name up and say you know this dude he he in front of everybody he looks really you know he looks really legit, but man, when he's by himself, he does all kinds of stuff. You know, he doesn't act like a believer all the time, right? This, this, is, this is the same kinds of conversations that go on now as we're going on then. That's, that's what's gone on. And when he says, I roamed about the earth, what's not said is, looking at all the hypocrites who call themselves by your name who don't live that way. Because that's precisely what goes on all the time. And who is, who is the one who stands up in our, uh, for us now? That's Jesus who witnesses for us, right? And who is it who condemns? No one, because Christ died, right? God's the judge. Jesus paid the price. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us. So, but right now, there's some accusation going on. You're in no danger, because you're, when God looks at you, who does he look at? He looks at Christ, right? He looks at Christ's blood and your redemption, and so you're safe. But there's still accusation going on, and that's what's going on here, and it's implied walking around looking at all the hypocrites that call themselves by your name. So what does the Lord say? Have you considered my servant Joe? Now, put up your hand if you'd like that conversation with your name right there. Not very many, right? I don't, personally, I would like my name not to be in that sentence. Have you considered my servant, Kurt? Okay? I don't, I don't want to be used as an example, okay? And I don't want him to come and, you know, to see if he really is who he says he is, okay? And then how about this? So if he uses your name, and Job knows all this now. He didn't know it then. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's a pretty cool thing to have. If he's going to use your name, you'd sure like that last sentence to follow it, right? You'd like that last sentence, uh, ladies, men, you know, there's no one like them on earth, blameless and upright. They fear God, and they turn away from evil. I mean, that's a really good testimony, right? So Job's name is in that sentence, and you know what's going to happen. So Satan says, and it's typical Satan fashion because we know he's an accuser of the brethren. He answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, You know, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed his work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, he's rich and protected, and he lives a cushy life. Of course, he follows you. See? So what's the implication? If he wasn't like that, he wouldn't follow you, right? There's the accusation. Same one's probably going on right now. Verse 11. And Satan says to the Lord, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So we if you've read that, you understand The progressive difficulty that happened starting right there with that sentence and that conversation. Did Job know know anything about uh, this proving a heavenly point? No. Did he have any idea that his name was being used in heaven, that that his righteous life had been noticed, and that the Lord said, you know what, he is faithful, he's my faithful guy. And we see later, not only did Job have all the pain and sorrow and difficulty to deal with, and it was a lot, but he had the annoyance and the grief of people giving him solutions that were inaccurate, Right? And so the four people who come and counsel Job, you know why they're there? They're there so you know not to be like them. Right? When people are having trouble, automatically jumping to what? Well, you must be sinning. That's why you're having all your trouble, because that's all they had to say about that. right? They didn't know why he was suffering. He didn't know why he was suffering. They can't tell him, what's well, this, or it's that, or it's this other thing. Right? Um, you know, there's something wrong in your life, something rotten, some sinfulness that nobody knows about but you know about. You know, if you looked at some maid without, and she's not your wife, or you, you know, you uh, lusted after something or whatever. See, and he knew there wasn't any sin in his life. He was a righteous man. The Lord knew there wasn't sin in his life. That he he loved the Lord and and, uh, and turned away from unrighteousness, and so he didn't know the reason why. And all their counsel is folly. So not only is he dealing with all the hardship and hurt and pain and, and difficulty, like the Apostle Paul, on top of that, he's dealing with what? The constant berating of people who don't like him and, and ridiculing him and all of that. And in the midst of that, he never wavered in his faith, see? And when it was all over, he didn't get the reason why it happened either. He's got it now. He was never told the heavenly point God was proving. And and he even made the mistake of perhaps asking some questions And then the lord asked job some pretty hard questions questions i don't think anybody would want the lord to ask them like you know where do i keep the hail and how far does the ocean go and all that and you know you put up your hand and say can you ask somebody else i don't know any of the answers to these questions and what was the point the lord was making there's more purposes at work here than just what you can see with your eyes and there's a lot of stuff i have control over that you don't even know anything about see and so i think that's pretty important and 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 when it was all done, all he said was, you know, Lord, before all this happened, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear. Now my eyes have seen you. And what did he do? I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, you know, God, I've never seen you as clearly as I see you in my difficulty, right? It was a spiritual high point of his life. And we know that what Satan wanted to do with Peter, right? In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And um, and I'm sure Peter, like the rest of us, would say, you said no, right? And it's like, uh, no, actually, when you return, encourage your brothers. There's some perfecting still had to go on, right? And Satan was going to do a little bit of that. And we know Revelation foretells for us how the demonic order is going to chase in the world and it's going to torment the earth during the tribulation. The Lord's going to use them to do his bidding. And we know the Lord used demons to chase and rebellious Israel. First Kings chapter twenty-two, verse twenty. Northern Kingdom, Ahab's a king, wicked, wicked, wicked. Right? The Lord is uh, wants to chase an Ahab, and so uh, there's this whole conversation going on up in heaven again. And the Lord says, "Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Gilead? In other words, he's going to go have a battle, and Ahab's going to be going to be killed. I'm going to take him out from where he is. And um, and one of the demons asked, uh, answered, and said. Uh, then a spirit, it, saying one thing or another, then a spirit comes forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. So what kind of spirit is it? What kind of agonist is it? It's, this is a demon, right? Because he's going to lie. And he's going to put lies in, in, in uh, the mouths of the people who are advising Ahab. And it's good. If you read the passage, they told him, go up, go up. The Lord's with you. You know, it's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to conquer and all that. And that's not what the Lord had intended, but he's using demons to accomplish this. And so he puts this word in all their mouths and, and uh, Deceiving spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, the Lord had proclaimed disaster against you. So the Lord's going to use demons to carry this out. See, and and then we see, you know, uh, in Second Corinthians, God has allowed this demon. Paul says to what to to torment me. So the suffering has been intense. It's uh, present active subjunctive, Kolovidzo, beating with the fist is the actual literal understanding of the word you've you've given me you from your hand has come this beating many blows some your your bible may say buffet me that's that's more i think under it helps us understand a little bit more uh, what's going on there torment me is good buffet me is more in line with the word which is a beating the indication is plain paul's being beaten all the time 24 hours a day every day i mark this a little bit you know God has chosen to permit the apostle to be constantly struck down by the satanic messenger. It's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? No doubt there were limits on what the demon could do because they're still under God's control, right? He can't just go and do whatever he wants to Paul any more than Satan could do whatever he wanted to Job. The Lord said, this is what you do. So you think about demon, you think about a spirit with a circle around it. I mean, yeah, you can do this and that's it. That's all you can do. This is what I want you to do and this is how you're going to you know, demons, obviously, and Satan rebelled from the Lord, but they never were outside of his, uh, his control, right? He uses them as he sees fit. Someday we'll bring them into subjection, throw them all into the lake of fire forever. But for now, they have temporary dominion. And, and that's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? And, and it's also what's hard for me really to imagine is when I, when I listen to all these false teachers come up and say, you know, we're telling demons to do this and we're praying through this building and casting the demons out of this building and we're, we're going to cast demons out of people. So the New Testament doesn't tell you to do that. It doesn't give you any power to do that. It's not explicitly or even implicitly uh, given to you. There's no spiritual gift for that. And, and people say that and I just think that's a ridiculous thing to think because we don't have any idea the power in the spirit world. We can't, we can't fly through, th- through that realm we don't see that realm. We don't know what power they have inside their own realm, right? We don't know in, what influences they have in, in governments and over rulers and what they've been involved with all this time. Did you know there's four, the Bible says there are four of them bound at the Euphrates River. Right now, they've been bound almost since the, before the creation probably, but since creation and perhaps right before the flood for the time during the tribulation. Right now. You can't see them. You don't know how powerful they are. What does it take to bind them? So to say stuff like we hear is insane. But we also know that the one who created all of that is in charge of all of that, and there's no power greater than he is, and he rules those things and does as he wishes and accomplishes purposes for our own life. And then we can be very content in knowing that, not content in our power to do some certain thing in the, in the spirit world, and that's just for free. But it, just, it occurs to me that, you know, that's just an insane thing to say. And, and to brag somehow that we have some power over all that but here God's allowed this to happen uh, it may be a stirring up of, of trouble inside the church which Paul's powerless to do anything about and that continually strikes him a blow maybe that's it maybe uh, no matter what Paul did the church hated him the church despised him the church ridiculed him even though he planted it and gave it good doctrine they followed false teachers and people fell into sin that church didn't exist it went out of existence because of its rebellion so here we go you know Maybe it's something else. I don't know. We don't know, but Paul knows it's from the Lord. That's important, and he knows that because he says it was to keep me from exalting myself. And In his prayer time, he says concerning this, he says, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Obviously, Paul didn't enjoy the beating he was taking, right? And we said that at the beginning. Nobody really enjoys that. Nobody looks forward to difficulty, hardship. See, But the Lord made a few things clear in the middle of it, okay? And so Paul could be content. And we're going to see some very remarkable things here in just a minute. Number one, the chastening was from him. So the Lord allowed a demon to come and chasten Paul. And what was it to do? It was to keep him humble. Number two, it was for Paul's good. Number three, God wasn't going to take it away. And if you think about it, it probably started shortly after he returned from his trip to heaven because that would have been when Paul would have begun to exalt himself. So that would have been right before Acts chapter 13, right before he started all of his main ministry. So at some point during that time, the Lord allowed a a demon, and Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh, to continually buffet him from that time on, and Paul had asked numerous times for the Lord to take it away, and the Lord said no. And then finally, um, and of course this goes along with all the other places we've seen this, God's purposes would prevail in Paul's ministry. It was for Paul's good, and he wanted the purposes of the ministry that, that the Lord had for him to come through. And the honor that God had bestowed on him with a trip to heaven has come with humiliation and the appearance of weakness and ridiculousness in front of people who look at him. Even when he says this this message, you can kind of, you know, we talked about the vision. You can just imagine it because he says, I don't know if I was in the body. I don't know if I was in the spirit. You know, I don't know when it, you know, I just know it happened. I just don't, and you can, they, you can just hear them say, that is so weak, Paul. You don't even know if you were actually there. You don't know if somebody else was. You know, what's going on? So, you know, he gets a trip, and then it's weakness and ridiculousness. And and if you are if you're a wrestler, Paul is pinned to the ground with Paul with with God's purposes. That's it. And he can't raise himself back up. He's locked down, and this is where the Lord's going to hold him. Now, I say all that, and I think that we've gone far enough in this passage, we've got this one last one, but I want to tie it together, and I, I think you'll see why. It never, it never hurts us to remind ourselves of God's purposes in difficulty, and I want to do that right now, and then we're going to get the very last point. In Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, we read, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. What do we know from that passage, beloved? The Lord allows us to experience difficulty so that he can comfort us so that we can what? You are taken through difficult times so you can learn how to comfort someone else. Many of you know this, and you have. And the the hardship you had in the past, you've been a very big encourager to someone else who's going through a similar hardship. You're doing precisely what the Lord desired for you to do. James after 1, verse 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may perfect and co- be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What do we know from that? God allows difficult times to test our faith so that we will have endurance and that produces a complete believer he can use. He lets you go through difficult times so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You're ready to be moved into another step of ministry and he's brought you through difficult times so you're ready for it. We resist it so much. We resist difficult people. We resist difficult times. We, we resent hardship. We resent physical ailments. We resent all this, and yet the Lord has his purposes in it, and if, he'd, if we'd let him have his purposes in it, we'd turn out to be a different kind of person than we are. And trouble is everywhere anyway, right? I mean, the Lord said, there's enough trouble today. Don't worry about the trouble for tomorrow. In this world, you'll have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You know, man is more to trouble. The sparks fly upward. The trouble is going to be there anyway. The issue really as a believer is what are we going to do with it? Because the Bible is very clear about it, see? And we saw the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope it doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What do we know from that passage? God allows difficult times so we can be made of the right stuff, proven character, Hoping and looking forward to his return. That's the final outcome. Difficult times are going to produce proven character. And then this hope for this future with the Lord, right? And difficult times can make us long for that. Difficult physical times can certainly make us long for a whole body, right? But we look for that hope and his return. And guess what? That salts everything else we do after that. If we're, if we're really looking forward to the hope of his coming, it's going to impact everything that we do. And difficult times can bring you to the point where that will be the thing that salts all of your efforts from that point on. How about John chapter 9, verse 3? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. What do we know from difficult times for that? Now, here's a guy born blind, right? What was it for? So God's, God's power would be, would be made manifest. God would be glorified. Super simple, right? You, you, you might be getting, going through a hard time so that the Lord can take you out of it, and if you handle it right and you give him glory, he, he's the one that's glorified because he delivered you from a de- very difficult situation. Very straightforward. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. What do we know? God allows difficult times so we can be corrected and walk in righteousness. He might bring you through difficult times to correct your, uh, the direction, the tangent you're on and get you back, right, where you need to be. And That's his point. And he loves you enough to do it, right? How about Job chapter 1, verse 8? You're like, oh, I don't want this one. Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless, upright man, fearing God, and turning away from evil. What do we know? God allows difficult times to prove a divine point. So you have the right to do that? Or do we belong to him? We do would it be great to know that in advance i'm going to prove a divine point so stay stay strong that'd be good right we our kids that way we'd like you to do this you know and, and we're all for you we want you to come out on the side and that's why we're doing it we don't get all that from the lord sometimes but that could be the reason we don't know right we certainly know there's plenty of examples of that so you have all of that and i want you then to add this one to it and it fits perfectly with that long line of God's purposes for our good, for His glory, through all eternity. We see in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse nine. He said to me, as Paul asked three times for him to be taken away, the Lord said no. He said to me, the Lord's got Paul pinned down using the demon to bring about physical ailment on him, difficulty, uh, piercing of some kind. It's not going to release him. Going to be beating him all the time. Keep him humble. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And, beloved, can I, I propose to you this, that, you know, like Job of old, Paul is going to realize God's purpose in and difficulty. And, and he's going to say, which he does, God, I've never seen you as clearly as I see you in my difficulty. Right? And, and what's Paul going to say? We're going to look at this not next week, but the week after. You know, so I'm well content in weaknesses and insults. How can, how can you be well content in weaknesses and insults and persecutions and difficulties? And we're going to look at this next time. How can you say I'm well content for when I'm weak Then I'm? Nobody wants to know this, right? I mean, it's not really what we want to talk about. We don't want to talk about hardship. We don't want to talk about the possibility of suffering in our life. We don't want to talk about, you know, a hard road we may have to walk. We don't want to talk about spiritual battles and all that kind of stuff because we, we fear that, right? And, and, and there's, I, I get that. Okay? I, I'm not immune to that. I'm not immune to fearing physical ailment that will cause pain and suffering on myself and people around me. I'm not immune to, you know, hardships in other places that I fear. But the fear is mitigated. Why? Because we know as a believer that we're not subject to the whim of the of the world and the way that it goes, but that we're God's own, His children, and He uses these things to bring about certain character traits in us for our good and for His glory for eternity. And and you know, as I said before, you know, First Peter tells us that. We'll be able to glorify God in a way we'd never be able to glorify him had we not gone through the difficult time and come out on the other side. And then we'll shine forever with that ability because we got it in the difficult times. And so, uh, beloved, this is just one of those things I think that we need to kind of assimilate into the fabric of our life. To understand that this difficult times are part of the way the Lord wants to use us. And you may be in the middle of it you're just thinking, man, I'm hating this whole thing. You know, well, maybe the Lord's got you pinned down for a reason, you know. And he wants you to, when, when he releases you, if he does, he wasn't going to release Paul from that buffeting. And Paul went to, his, to eternity with that, no doubt, to keep him humble. But what was Paul expecting? Paul got to see uh, that inheritance kind of a little bit in advance. So Paul was perfectly content with it, right? And even if the Lord wasn't going to let him up, he was going to be okay. And then he was able to say, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. God, I've never seen you as clearly as I see you in my difficulty. What what we do know is God allows difficult times in Paul's life in our life for us to rely on his grace, and that's not a bad thing, and to have real spiritual power. The spiritual high point of Paul's life, I think he would say that easily. And so perhaps we can begin to see God's hand, his purposes, in our own difficulty. It's bound to be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, I thank you today for opportunity to be in your word and be with these folks. Such great uh, opportunities to just um, worship together, to serve together, to have the fellowship that comes of a common bond that's your Son who's redeemed us from, from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of you, Father. We are co heirs with Christ. How remarkable is that? Counted as your children, adopted in so, Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you, too, that you have the right to bring difficult times on us. We don't really look forward to them. We would prefer not to have them. We'd like to live an easy life. We'd like to live a content life, a life of, of um, peace. But you may not have that in mind. You know what we need. And if we trust you because you're good and we know that you have your best, our best interest at heart and your own glory and our good for eternity and for now, then we can come into them with a little bit of different mindset which may help us to begin to have the types of character traits Paul and the rest of the biblical writers talk about, the contentment and the uh, peace and the hope and the joy. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to grow mature things that we're talking about here, not the uh, God wants you healthy and wealthy and wise and and content and and rich and whatever. But instead, God wants you mature, complete, lacking nothing. He knows how to get us to that point. So help us to Submit to that, Father, as you bring it to us and in and, and trouble in general, which is life just has. Help us to look at your purposes in it. Help us to be conformed by it so we don't have to keep repeating the same tests over and over again. We give these things to you. Confess to you that we've been wrong in places, Lord, that we've done things that are displeasing to you in the way we've handled difficult times. We'd like to be content and faithful and come out shining at the other end. And pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and God's people said, amen.